What makes a good network design? Is it meeting all of the technical requirements of the business? Is it coming in way under budget? That's always a good thing. Maybe it's making sure that the network is as resilient as possible, regardless of the budget. Or maybe it's just following the network vendor's validated design guide right down to every single config snippet. Well, anyone who's worked in this business for more than five minutes knows the answer. It depends. It depends on a lot of things, actually. And today, my good friend Brian Gleason, a veteran network engineer, veteran sysadmin, network architect, and currently a sales engineer with Juniper, is joining me to talk about what makes a good network design. My name is Philip Gervasi, and this is Telemetry Now. Hey, Brian, it's good to see you, man. I have been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. I remember when we first met in person, at least, it was at, uh, I think it was at Cisco Live, right? Yeah. And it was, that was 2019 uh, or yeah, 2018. 2018 in San Diego. 2018, okay, in San Diego. That was actually my first time in San Diego and uh, fell in love with it. And I've been back a few times since. I went with my wife once for uh, for an extended, uh, extent, uh, like a long weekend. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was great. It was great meeting you in person and uh, and great seeing you again today, uh, really is. So uh, I, I know your experience because we're friends. So I know from your, you know, just knowing you for the past few years, your extensive background as a network engineer turning a wrench, as a, a solutions engineer, solutions architect, whatever mm -hmm. you folks call pre-sales engineers, and uh, working in the security space, working in the campus, working in the data center, all these areas. So you have a, a really broad experience. So um, what I want to talk to you about today is network design. You've seen it all. You are a veteran engineer. So starting off with kind of this, maybe it's an unanswerable question, but what, in your opinion, makes a good network design? And you can answer that question in the context of the campus and the data center, or maybe there's some even more broad uh, concepts that sort of cover everything. But what do you think makes a good network design? Well, let's see. Um, that's, a, a, that's a nice question because I think uh, it, it almost differs from whether or not you're, you're in the trenches or if you're trying to sell or you're trying to be, be a VAR. Like if you work for a VAR, okay. you're trying to help, uh, help yeah. someone um, meet the needs. If you're in the trenches, I think there's a couple of other goals. Um, one is, can you do it within your budget? Can you meet these vague designs that, uh, that, the, that some business unit um, has given you? And then, and then, how do you make your how do you make your life easier? Because most network engineers in the trenches just want to sleep in the middle of the night. They want the network to be self healing. Mm -hmm. So if your design kind of works works to meet those business goals and keep you asleep, um, can can fix itself. It, it it's it's probably a good start. Um, so if you're on the if you're on the var side, and you're trying to help them help make a design, that's where you need to need to look at. Um, best practices. Uh, how do you build mm. in redundancy and resiliency, and and still meet those meet the needs of the of your customer? Um, on the uh, OEM side, on the on the vendor side, um, you want to sell them the the correct part. Um, don't just go in for go in for cheap, but you want to make sure that it, that the parts that you're giving them meet their needs for for a longer term. So it's going to be things like. Uh, uh, investment protection, um, stability. Mm. Do they really need bleeding edge, or can we? Can you help? Can you be a partner with your customer and not not just a, you know, wham bam, thank you, ma'am kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. 
so uh, that's that's kind of broad. Um, well, yeah, and I, I post it in a in a broad way because I'm trying to start off by at least identifying those main concepts that we can then drill down into. And you know, right off the bat, you mentioned reliability, stability. Uh -huh. uh, those are the things that I know, especially on the enterprise side, but of course in the service provider realm, uh, whether that be web scale, hyperscale, uh, e-commerce, I, I really anywhere that you are networking, which is like everywhere today. Uh, we I find that network operators really value uh, stability and reliability yes. and fault tolerance over everything else. So I, I believe that a good network design starts with that as the foundation. And, and within that, yes, there are business constraints. There are cost constraints. There are uh, technological constraints as far as what features are available and what engineering staff you have available. Those are all there as constraints and considerations in your design. But I really believe that it starts with this foundation of stability, resiliency, because I think, I think you'd agree, the, the network doesn't exist for itself. It exists for the, the express purpose of application delivery. Well, any service delivery, but it's usually in the form of an application. And then, uh, do, do, you, do you know Tony Afantis, by the way? Uh, his name sounds familiar, yeah. Okay, to Tony uh, was on this podcast a while back, and I remember we were having this conversation, and he actually corrected me and said, you know what, it's not actually application delivery. I mean, yeah, it's application delivery, but even that is a proxy for end users, mm -hmm. people accessing their data. Correct. So that's really what the network is all about, is making sure that human beings and then machines to machines can access information, yeah, can yeah. access data. The network customer yeah. Is, yeah. is every butt in a seat in anywhere across the globe. So it's... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how do you how do you design a network so it's reliable, resilient and, and performant and all those things? I mean, yeah, that's that's when you start to then consider, uh, OK, who are my engineers that are going to be managing this on day two? How much money do we have? Right. Where are we today? You know, that's another consideration. Um, you know, what what does the network look like today? And, and, and therefore, is this a gigantic rip and replace? And then what does the design look like then? But uh, yeah, I feel like that it's kind of an all all of the above thing, and not as much on, I don't know, platforms and, and yeah, specific you know, the, and, switching router. Bones. And the thing is, I think um, see, I always I always like starting with some of my constraints because um, mm -hmm. knowing those and having those kind of defined um, really gives me it, it. It sort of shortens the leash a bit on what I can do uh, to meet you know the, those sort of those expectations and provide the best service for for my users. All those seats. Um, yeah. And, and typically once I kind of know those, those, those constraints, I can, I can almost design something like a, Hey, we can do this for, uh, this thing, a, a, a good, better and best approach. Right. So at least now, um, your, your business units and all those, all those people that have constraints on your, on your service or that are providing or making constraints on your service, you can at least say, if we do it this way, then it'll meet your need, but you're going to have problem. You'll have these potential problems. Like, uh, maybe you're not quite as reliable. You don't have, you know, you don't have redundancy within your, within the, the network. And maybe that's okay because you're, you know, you're, you're a very, very small office or your home office. Like if you're, if you're reaching out to small office, home office, especially after the, uh, the pandemic and everybody's working from home, kind of, you're, you're just needing edge connectivity and you're not, so much worried about uh, redundancy there, right? Um, right? Right. So those those types of uh, who are you trying to service helps dictate how you're going to design the network. 
Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, who who is the actual end user in this case? Is it the city of Chicago because you're a service provider or a region, a geographic mm-hmm. region in the world? Um, and then you start then then a good network design is going to have these transit paths and you're going to look at these peering relationships and the cost associated with Correct. them and and so your 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 requirements, business constraints, uh, technical constraints, they change as a result of the the nature of who your end users are. And if you're a let's say a large medical uh, facility, like a, like a healthcare system, where it's like a bunch of hospitals and data centers, it's, it's still huge, but much more traditional. Uh, and, and maybe there is literally no tolerance for risk in those scenarios. Yeah. I, I love, remember, like, you don't hear it that much, but the whole like fail fast, fail, fail often kind of um, mantra that we heard for a few years, yeah. and it sort of spilled into networking. And it was the idea of being agile and all these things. And I'm like, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell customer, you know, uh, hospital X that uh, it was all about stability and reliability above everything else, yep. like beyond, you know, anything. But then, like you said, there, therein lies a cost. So, you know, you go to you go to your customer and you say, in this particular data center, how how mission critical are these services? Because if we start doubling everything and, you know, to increase fault tolerance. And then we want to also um, improve fault tolerance at the hardware level. And we're putting in an active standby or active, active firewalls and whatever, whatever. You start doubling your cost, you start doubling licensing cost, mm-hmm. and maybe then you got to double that in your standby data center. I mean, it, it, it goes up exponentially. Yes, it does. Double the cost of optics, double the cost of the actual resources under it, double the cost of power and cooling. And do you have the rack space? Um, and, and, the, and then the complexity of, of that, um, you know, I, I know having done those kind of projects, I'm going to go back to healthcare because that one, uh, it, for some reason, it's very top of mind for me. You get into some of those scenarios where they're like, well, we need, we need absolutely no downtime. You know, we're talking about uh, physicians and, and um, operating rooms and all this sort of thing. I'm like, okay, absolutely understood. And then you look at who's going to manage this thing on day two, and you look at their staff, and they have an entire staff, but they're outsourcing almost all their high-level engineering, and you know they just have kind of low or mid-level for the day-to-day. And I'm like, I mean, we're talking about uh, some pretty advanced routing concepts, so all your links are being utilized and active and load balanced, so that way, yes, it's both fault-tolerant and performant, where we don't have idle links and idle devices and and all that sort of thing, and and I got and it gets me nervous. I, I actually remember um, maybe it was before the pandemic, so 2019, early 2020. I had one customer in uh, New York, just north of New York City, um, hospital system, and that it got it got me. I'm not even joking, Brian. I got nervous where I was like laying in bed at night and talking to my wife about it. Like I don't know, if this, like I'm scared this hospital is going to go down. <laughs> you know, if somebody wiggles the wrong wire. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that ever happened because I ended up leaving that company. But uh, but yeah, yeah, that's that's those are all the things that we think about in network design. And me, in my experience on the enterprise side, you know, um, yeah, it's not it's not really as much about protocols and platforms and, and things like that. So. Yeah, it, uh, most I mean, you know, most vendors are going to use the same uh, Broadcom chipset or they use you know merchant chips. So you're going to have some very similar performance um, metrics anyway. Uh, anyway. It's uh, yeah, yeah, true. It, uh, you know, some uh, some vendors will do things better than than others. Uh, maybe the, the CLI or the management or the or API calls or all that kind of stuff is is more fully developed. Um, so when you start thinking about maybe um, you know day two operations or um, and you can start moving into automation, then you're uh, controlling 
what thing is being pushed out onto which servers or, or I'm sorry, which, uh, you know, which routers and switches. Um, you can do it a lot more tested and controlled and you're not worried about as much fat fingering a, uh, you know, a policy, yeah. a routing policy to take your, your, your network down. Then it becomes just, you can do sort of more with less, I think, um, mm. as long as you start to standardize, standardize how you're, how you're deploying your, your VLANs and your routing policies and that kind of thing. So your design becomes much more um, important for day two operations, especially when you start getting into into automation and orchestration and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds, and that's not something I was even thinking about. What you're talking about is a good network design is setting yourself up for success on day two. It's not just purely... Yeah, it's not just purely like, is this a very performant and resilient network, which, which it should yeah, be. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully that's already, uh, those boxes have been checked. Um, but it's now, can we run with this uh, moving moving forward? Right. And if if you can't, then there's a problem. And maybe it's not a good network design. Yeah. Interesting. And, and, Phil, actually, and yeah, you talked about- Phil, you actually mentioned it ahead. too. It's like, um, you know, a good network design is actually gonna, going to take into account the the, uh, the skill set of the people that actually have to manage the thing, right? So mm. if, you have, if you have people- um, with very limited um, experience in uh, managing a network and you're doing um, and you've got a you know a, a 10,000 node uh, data center with spine leaf and super spines and and uh, and automation it's going to be very very difficult to have a a stable network because the people running it don't it, they just don't have the experience and understand full understanding so However, I would say that if that if that is the technology that's required for the services being delivered, then it is what it is, yeah. and they need to staff up. Absolutely, right? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> oh, like you don't have the right staff, we're going to give you this Mickey Mouse network. Well, you you, can't, it, you, you can't run your hospital on a network. Right. Go get some better engineers. Exactly. So, yeah. I do think that there is a balance there, yes. and. And I also think that if you're designing your network in such a way where you need constant massaging by engineers, then maybe it's not so stable and reliable. Right. I used, to, you know I used I mean? to argue, um, like the network shouldn't be a boutique shop. We should have small, medium and large yeah. and we're, we're going to be kind of Walmart, right? You, when you come in, you know what you're going to get every time. And, hmm. and that, again, that goes to, to having a stable network, right? If you're, if you're doing, I mean, that's if you're doing these one, not one offs, then yeah. when something goes bad, it takes forever to figure out where the where the problem may lie sure then you start incorporating tribal knowledge yeah, and yeah. lack of documentation exactly. i was almost, almost said documentation but it's <laughs> right. lack of that's what uh, uh greg farrow used to say that all the time uh that every network is a snowflake and we love our little snowflakes yes, yeah. and we care for them and, and all of that so now what about what about today i mean here we are 2023 2024 and you know our network is public SaaS providers and cloud. We don't own that stuff. Maybe we're using DNS services. Again, we don't own that. Uh, we're relying on the public internet because we got rid of all our MPLS or, or maybe we're using some MPLS, but it's much more hybrid. Mm -hmm. And so now we're relying on an SD-WAN, right? That runs over the top of the public internet. Yeah. Again, something we don't own or manage. So yeah, that to me, today's designs, a good design today is, is gonna look different than a good design um, 15 years ago. However, conceptually, the goals are the same, reliability, performance, uh, day two management, all those things, like you said, like we've been talking about, but it is going to look different. You know, it's which which overlay are we using for our, our uh, public network? What are we using to exchange routes? Is it, you know, um, 
uh, how, how to what extent are we relying on our public cloud provider for resources? Yeah. So maybe yeah. we can balance that and, and mitigate that risk. What do you what do you think today? Is it is it really the same as it's always been, uh, or do you think that there's new considerations there? You know, I think um, I think probably about. I, like you said, I think the I think the concepts are still are still the same. Like you still have the same re- types of requirements, the same um, yeah. uh, the same uh, needs to get the the best bang for your buck, the fastest speeds, um, you know, end user um, expect, expectations. Um, in fact, you know, at at Juniper we have this thing called um, SLEs, um, service level expectations. It's not what it's not how mm-hmm. the network is performing. It's how is your end user actually experiencing the network. So. Yeah. Right. So I don't care if something goes down as long as my my user is still is still um, able to attach to the network, able to connect to certain things. That, well, you care a little bit. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, you care a Just little, a little bit. bit. Uh, yeah, but it, I understand. Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it as long as I don't have someone yelling at me because the because the the network sucks or it's down or nobody's getting on, and I can still say, mm-hmm. actually, the network's still up, um, and you're still seeing the same metrics. Um, I'll just go and replace this device. That's that you think is causing the problem, but then I, it's sort of mean time to innocence, right? Um, so those are yeah. those are still concepts that are that are that are there, um, but the technology is changing so much that that it's it's sort of a um, how do you use the the innovation to um, maintain or improve your ability to meet your customers' needs and goals? So. You mentioned mm-hmm. you mentioned SD WAN. I mean, I remember back in the day when um, when uh, our, it was it was policy based routing, right? You would you would, you'd mm-hmm. have to define, um, hey, these particular source of de- source de- um, destination addresses and these particular ports need to go out this other interface, and then everything else would come down my frame relay network or my MPLS network. Um, that was all manual. Well, mm-hmm. we did that because you 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 needed. Um, you needed to isolate certain applications for for the speed and for the, and for the performance, right? Right. Well, now yep. SD WAN can do all that stuff automatically. You just you you carve out the the classes in which which applications you think you, that are already pre canned. You get on your little controller. You go check 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 push. And now you're getting metrics back on uh, uh, you're getting metrics back. Uh, applications can be can be punted over over different services, or, you know, or over mm-hmm. different um, circuits based on. Uh, latency or other, all these other all these other bandwidth uh, and health network health metrics. So yeah. it just it just gets it it gets a little easier, but it also gets a little more complex because you can't just sit back and go, well, I know RIP, and, <laughs> and so it should just it should just work. Um, you, you you have to uh, keep learning something new. You can't be stale in your in this type of career. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, we still want that reliable and stable network, and now the complexity is such that you have to learn new technologies yeah. in order to continue to have that reliable yeah. and stable network. So that's still the core. It's still having a high-performance uh, connectivity to the applications, ultimately the data, right, for a human being to get to. It's just how, how that happens is different. Yeah. And so... Yeah, so there was a day when we were talking about like, oh, the coolest new top of rack, end of row, and then data center core switching and lossless connectivity for V storage and V motion, uh, storage V motion. Excuse me, I said it wrong. 
it's been a long time. Um, that, that those were the things that we needed at the time to provide a performant and resilient network. And and today it's the same concept. We want a performant and 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 stable network, but maybe we're talking about spine leaf. Maybe we're talking about AI workloads and extremely high bandwidth and scheduling uh, a fabric uh, as opposed to just you know hash based ECMP. Yeah. So there's different tools that we need in 2023, 2024 that actually solve the same problems that produce the same result yeah. um, just in the context of where we are today. So it's interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, ne it never ends. You know, I work in technical marketing now, so I'm not quite as close to the technology as when I was literally out there turning wrenches, you know, tightening right, right. bolts, like literally turning wrenches. And, um, and then at the CLI and then eventually as a systems, uh, rather a solutions architect designing, which was still very close to the tech, but even now I see it, um, interaction with customers, interaction with um, uh, the engineers in my own company, that it's just, it's a constant like, wait, what What just came out? All right, I guess I'm studying that tonight. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you know? and it, it really is. It's funny because I think, um, you know, if you're, at least when I, I won't speak for everybody, but when, but when I was on the, on the, on the VAR side, um, I remember, mm -hmm. I can remember going into certain customers and they'd, and they'd ask, you know, some specific question about a technology. I'm like, geez, I'm just one chapter ahead of you right now, but, but I've got, right. I've got enough. But they never knew that. They would never know that, yeah. but you can at least talk to them. Yeah. And, and as long as you said something, if you have a, if you have a VAR that, that will always give you the, the answer all the time. And, um, you might want to just be a little, a little suspect. You should hear, you know, I don't know, but give me a little bit and I'll come back and give you the information. Part of, and part of it, um, especially on the on the network design part is, um, like Pharaoh says, you know, this is our little snowflake of uh, of, of the network. Um, sometimes there there are specific requirements that that your business has that your VAR, who's trying to help you give, get the best design, um, doesn't know about. So if you have a good relationship with them and and, and your your um, Network architect for for your partner says, you know, I don't know, but let me go go back and look. You got to expect that he's got he or she has enough um, enough resource more resources than you do to help find that answer. So there should be a pretty good partnership between uh, between network engineers um, when you get into design mark when you get into the design phase of your network. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, as, as we start to actually build the design out and start selecting routing protocols and, and platforms and where things go and how things are connecting. It really does depend on what the customer's requirements are. And, and I, that does include all of those things that we've discussed, like cost and uh, performance requirements, uh, you know, what thresholds can we not exceed, yep. you know, things like that. And that's going to determine whether it's a good design. Whereas that same design handed to a different customer might be absolutely terrible. Right. It just doesn't meet their needs. As an example, I had a Healthcare, I'm going back to healthcare, a healthcare <laughs> customer in the Midwest. Yeah, I don't know. It just happened to be, but uh, out in the Midwest and they had many, many, um, uh, they had a bunch of hospitals, I think a dozen hospitals, several, da six data centers. Um, they were in uh, GCP. They were not in Azure or, or AWS. Mm -hmm. And um, we, were, we were designing an SD-WAN and one of their requirements was that um, they could not exceed something like 35 milliseconds of latency on any link. So they were all fully MPLS, uh, lease lines, private, everything yeah. everywhere because of that. And it was specifically because of their imaging devices, MRI, PET scans, CAT scans, all that stuff required very, very low latency. 
and uh, and it was mission critical. We're talking about you know people's lives. So um, that was a uh, a technical constraint, which turned into a business constraint as well because it it, it tied to cost um, of uh, of that particular SD WAN design. And and in that process, we therefore did not go with certain vendors or certain topologies. Um, because of that. And so that was a determining factor. Whereas with other customers, and I've, I've worked with, I remember one customer here in the Northeast where I live, it was a, a chain of pet stores, pet food, yeah. you know, and, and toys and fish tanks and that kind of stuff. And there was a whole bunch of them all over the Northeast. All they cared about was like, did the access to the, you know, the internal website, which at the time was still internal, not in the cloud, did the customers have access to that? Not customers. I mean, the um, internal folks have access to it. And did credit card transactions go through? That was, and, you know, the inventory wasn't a huge thing because it wasn't like TCP kind of correct itself. It got through eventually. That was it. That design, that SD-WAN design, very, very different. Still, and I hope the customer thought, was still a good design, but completely different than the healthcare system. So It's requirements. You got you to gotta know what you're designing too. Otherwise, you're just, you're just kind of hey, here's a box of stuff and I'm going to dump it on the table and what, however it comes out, that's, that's since you're not giving me any requirements, then I'm yeah. just going to plug stuff in. Although I do have to say, I was with VARS for most of my career and many times when I was a an engineer and not the solutions architect doing the design, yeah. so I got the statement of work and I'm looking at it and I'm reading through it and I'm in a kickoff meeting and I'm like, this is not going to work. Or, <laughs> yeah. this is ridiculous. Like, this is such an overkill. Clearly, clearly, this was an, uh, an effort to pack as much margin on hardware as possible on this yep. particular deal. And so much of this stuff is going to sit idle or is completely unnecessary or they're never going to touch this once I set it up. The, the, they have three engineers back in, in the back office there and they're never going to touch yeah, it. It's going to just sit yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, all right, fine. You know, the, the account manager made, you know, made bank on this one and I installed it and put it in and we moved on. But I saw that. I saw that very often. And. I would say that it met all the requirements. The, apparently, they paid for it, so I guess it met the cost requirement as well. So I may—I mean, in the purest sense, it's still a good design. But um, I did notice, like, there was a lot of overkill. There was a lot of, you know, um, unnecessary over-engineering, yep. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that happens probably more times than it should. And I think—I think it's just because. Um, yeah. Yeah. If, if again, I think it's just requirements. If you don't have those things documented, then it's really hard to go. Um, this is the best solution for what we're what we need to accomplish. Yeah, and then be able to discern and say this year. Yeah, I get it. It meets the requirements, but this is all completely unnecessary. Right. I'm spending an extra eight hundred thousand dollars. I don't need to spend. Yeah. What? But what about? Um, Validated designs. You know how like vendors, Cisco, Juniper, uh, I'm assuming Arista and the other big vendors, they have these uh, validated design guides, right? You work for Juniper, yes. so I don't know what you call them internally, but what what about those? I mean, that's the actual vendor saying, hey, this is what a design should look like. Maybe that's maybe that's the answer. Just follow those and, and call it a day. Yeah. So there's, I think there's... That's probably a, a, a pretty broad topic too, and we can almost dive into into a lot of little. Um, we could follow a lot of trails on that one. Um, validated design guides are probably, are, I think, are probably the most underused um, um, documents out on on uh, manufacturers' websites. Uh, I really do, um, and part of them, part of it, I think, is is if you've never if you've never really looked at them. Um, 
they can be they can be kind of challenging. I mean, they're they should be pretty dense, right? Um, they should cover a multiple multitude of ways to deploy um, a product that will that will give you the reliability and the, and, the, and performance and all that kind of thing. Um, but there's so I think one of the best things that you can do is if you're if you're going down this this track, use those validated design guides. They they will give you a sample sample script uh, sample config um, uh, scripts. They'll give you uh, uh, deployment strategies. Um, they'll give you case studies, and all those things are have been developed and worked on by the vendor. So, uh, you know, you, you deploy this thing as the as the design guide says. Um, if you call, when not if when you call back into uh, for technical support because of a because of an outage or something's going on with a piece of hardware, um, you can say, hey, I went to page. 400 in this design guide and and it, it, it helps your your support staff understand your your topology rather than try and draw it down on a on a napkin as they're as as your stress level is increasing and their stress level is increasing that things get missed so it it just gives you that 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 block like i said um network, network should be kind of small medium and large um and try and stay away from boutiques the design guys yeah. Well, and as much as we can, yeah. I mean, we have been talking about how there are requirements like a particular application that you're running that has a specific threshold. Therefore, you employ a certain feature set, whereas in another network, you don't employ that feature set. So I, I do think that no matter what, we're never going to get into a true, a true, pure, small, medium, large stamp out network. Ah, you know, no. you know, as I'm saying it out loud, I think a lot of networks can be small, medium, and right. large. Just not all. Yeah. I think a lot of them. Now, now that I say it and, and I think about back on my experience, most of the time, there, you know, unless you're getting into like really high-end day trading and certain healthcare, most enterprise networks, as far as I'm concerned, it's like, all right, you're, you're fine. Yeah. Probably even service provider. Most service providers, in my experience, have really similar needs. Like, uh, get this packet in and, and get, get it out out, as, out of my core as fast as possible. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want it in the network. Let's let's move it. And and you know, what's the most efficient path to get there as well? Yeah. But uh, but this but then, this is the thing then too, the, Phil, is, that, is like if you if you use those those design guides, um, it does give you that you know those building blocks. And if you have to bolt on a little, you know, a little. That's a right, little nuanced thing for a you know for a business unit you can you've got the ability to do it and then it's you know then it's just you know I hate to say it but you do have to go back and at least document it and say this is what it's for these are the requirements that this is the reason we have that little that little piece yeah yeah that makes sense so the the validated design guides do give you that foundational element those building blocks like you said to to say this is what a uh, a reliable and performing network looks like. And of course it gets you like maybe 80% of the way there, 90% of the way yeah. there. Um, and, and in some cases, because the network or rather the customer doesn't have these, you know, uh, very, very specific requirements, maybe even close to hundred percent of the way there. Yeah. It is, it is completely determined on vendor though. So, you know, if you're an entirely Juniper network, okay. Um, what about in these hybrid networks today when we're talking about, um, Multi-cloud. We're talking about uh, data center might be vendor A. Your WAN might be vendor B. Security devices might be vendor C. You know, what do you think about that uh, in, in that scenario? Yeah. So in, in that sense, again, I think if you're, it, 
like if you looked at, at Juniper, Cisco, Arista, um, the the topologies and the architecture are going to be are going to be very very similar, right? Um, in your data center, okay. we're we're all pushing, um, you know, three clove, five, uh, five clove um, architecture, spine leaf, um, uh, use BGP for you know for routing. So one of the, uh, internally, so one of those things that you you kind of want to want to look at, like your 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 configuration, um, the things that you're going to bang on the keyboard are going to be obviously a little different from you know from vendor to vendor. Um, certain technologies may may not be supported on a, on a certain platform, so those would be you know little changes. Um, but one of the things you have to look at: do these particular vendors for for interoperability? Are you are, are they doing proprietary things or are they doing standard things? And when they say when the when the you know when the manufacturer says yeah we write to the IEEE standard or this RFC, um, what does that actually mean? <laughs> So are you supporting okay. all of that RFC or are you supporting just a portion of that RFC? And um, is it, would it, would it still be um, interoperable? So for example, there's a, there's a, a, uh, a document that I came across um, on, on our side that talked about how to make a, uh, between Juniper and Cisco, the uh, EVPN VXLAN. And there are a couple of differences. There's some nuances um, on how, how the um, how the frames and the packets are being or would be um, exchanged between between these two devices. Uh, we can do it. Um, it's just you're probably not going to see that in a in a validated design guide. You're gonna you're just gonna have to do a little bit right. more digging, right? And yeah. again, the the vendors do test interop and they do put all this stuff down. Mm. So. And so it is in the in the design guides. Yeah, you can even, you can read how, you can read you can read about doing. Um, you know how to set up your network, uh, but you know for for the example that you're talking about um, interoperability, um, you know it, that that particular piece may not be in the design guide, but you could actually go off to another. You know, you may link off to another document and go, okay, I need to do this between um, this vendor and this vendor. Are there are there known yeah. issues? Right, right. So yeah, so it sounds like that validated design guides give us uh, standards baselines kind of for yes. what the vendor says, this is what a deployment looks like, uh, sort of a thing that we can go and refer to and, and use as our starting point. And, uh, and then from there, like you said, you can jump off into even you know, more specific information like interoperability right. and things like right. that. You um, got to start, you got to start somewhere in the design guides really, really help. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, um, you know, especially if you're talking about, changes that happen in versions and distributions yep. and, and code versions. Like I'd like to see, okay, we have this new feature that was rolled out or we have these new, this new software version and these wireless controllers, whatever, you know, what is the design supposed to look like? How, how does, how do those uh, join messages get sent now? And, uh, and how does that play into like the client devices? Like I, I do want to go read all that first. And so, um, uh, that, that is very, very important to me to design a good, I, I used wireless as my example because it's so finicky sometimes, especially uh, finicky mostly because of the client devices, but you want to know how all those components yeah. work so that <laughs> way you can anticipate those issues. And, and, then, and then when you're calling TAC, you know, when you're calling Juniper TAC um, and they're looking at your design, there's no you know, major surprises yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. Right? Now the, the other thing as well is, um, you know, we talked about uh, how, um, how certain equipment has, has changed. Like you, you know, the, you know, the network concepts, right. Um, 
But yeah. then when you get into, you know, we talked about uh, using PBR for, for basically a, a, a poor man's SD-WAN back in the day, and now we've got all these all these bells and whistles and widgets that, that do all this stuff automatically. So sometimes, um, if you have no experience with the technology, sometimes it's really good to work with your, you know, with your partner, um, kind of get some, some idea on what they would recommend, and then you can go back to that design guide and go, oh, geez, I can go to this chapter and, and actually look at how, um, how my partners are, are recommending we, we do this particular mm-hmm. task. Right. And then you, then you don't just sit at, sit at the end of the table and go, okay, man, I trust you. You can, you know, you can actually interact with them and come up to a better design because you've taken some of their, some of their recommendations and you cross-checked it with what the, with what your, what the vendor says is capable of that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it presupposes a certain level of engineering knowledge though. You know, you can't just jump into a validated design guide and then start copying and pasting. Uh, I mean, I guess you can. I've done that. Let me say. Let me say that again. You can. You can copy and paste config snippets that you know. Okay, this, and then you kind of change IP addresses and things like that. Maybe you change the router name in this snippet. Uh, I have done that a lot, but uh, but again, it's it starts with the understanding of what's going on. I understand. Oh, okay, this is why they're doing this in the design guide. Oh, I see. Okay, this is where that adjacency happens. Or you can say, "Oh, I'm not doing that. Um, this, you know, this design guide says to use EIGRP everywhere, yeah, and not we're that. not going to lock ourselves in. We want to be uh, open standards, like you yeah. said, For, may, or maybe not. Maybe we don't care. But uh, just as an example, that is, uh, you know, that it, it gives you the knowledge to then to then be able to understand what you're reading in this design guide. So yes, it's super helpful. It's foundational, but it, it does presuppose that you you do have a certain level of, of engineering knowledge and understanding." I mean, would you consider that a weakness of a validated design guide? I mean, I, I don't know. In asking you that question, I'm almost like, I mean, what, 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 what would we expect? Like that you literally just buy this complete like box of networking and everything works and like your entire data center just gets shipped in one day and, and dropped in place and it all works. Like, no, it's a system. So, so I guess it can't really be of a, a weakness that it requires you to know engineering. But, well, I'll tell you uh, this. Um, just... As an amusing anecdote, um, when back in, man, it must have been 90, 1996, that's really when I started getting into, into computers after swearing off that I would never do computers at all. I went through like the, the MCSE track back in Windows NT4 days and D351, and uh, my first IT job, I was a systems administrator up in, up in uh, Danbury, Connecticut. After a, after a troubleshoot, uh, on a on a domain controller, I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. I actually want to get into networking, but I had no networking experience. And you know, back in the day, Cisco had really really good um, design guides and technical 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 documentation. I remember reading those things, like every one of them. And the first Cisco press book I got, um, I started I started reading through that, and I'm like, man, I read all these white papers already. They, you guys just printed it out and bound it. Uh, but because I read all that stuff, my first networking job, I had zero experience, but I knew the technology. I knew how IPv4 worked and I knew how IPX, SPX worked. And so I, I could, I talked myself into, into that job and then uh, was able to, to still do day to day things. Um, you know, so they, they do help and they do give you a sense of, of, um, kind of confidence that, that the technology may be new to you, but, uh, but you know what's going on, and then 
you know, with, with a little more experience, you can start to figure out, is this, you know, how do I need to change up this design uh, that's in this guide to fit the business need? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and that's why I said earlier that, you know, maybe the a design guide is going to give you a, you know, a vendor design guide is going to, or a validated design guide, excuse me. It's going to give you like maybe 80% of yeah, yeah, get yeah. you 80% of the way there. Yeah. And then you adjust and that's still a huge benefit, right? Yes. It's better than 0% and you're literally on a, you know, on a piece of paper scribbling out lines and dashes and boxes <laughs> right. inside a box. Vizio. You know? Vizio is not your friend sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, the thing is though, we've been talking about, you know, vendor design guides. So do you think that you know, in my experience, you're looking at a Cisco or a Juniper design guide. They're they're talking about Cisco or Juniper, right, mm-hmm. or or Arista or whatever. Uh, they're vendor focused. It, you think that that is somehow a negative in the sense that maybe it is lacking in just kind of the pure engineering of packets and protocols and how do we design this solution? You know, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, if you can if you can imagine, uh, you got a you got a staff of people for, for at a with a particular vendor um, that are building out these, doing all the testing, all the, all the uh, lab work, um, you know, all the stuff they're building networks um, that they would, that that can be supported to write that for every particular vendor. uh, Like where do you stop? Right. Um, So I think that, I think at least with the guy, with those types of guides, and they are a guide, right. It's not a, it's not, it's not the Bible. It, it, it's to Mm -hmm. help you help you build these things. I don't. I don't see a way for for any any OEM to be able to test against every particular um, uh, competitor. This is. I guess this is why we have uh, you know the IEEE and and all these RFCs because because you can't actually test with with every vendor. If everybody everybody writes the same type of uh, you know nut and bolt, but the but the shape is a little bit different for because of the vendor or the color is a little different for the vendor. At least you know, hey, this bolt is still going to work with uh, with this particular nut. So the concepts in the validated design guides are going to be somewhat ubiquitous among vendors. Yes. There's going to be a little bit of a change, like you yeah. said, a nut yeah. bolt here, or um, maybe the commands are slightly the syntax. I mean, of commands are slightly different, but the the general concepts are the same. Right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and ultimately, you are. Who, who's going to write a completely vendor-neutral one? I mean, th- there's there's an incredible cost and, and sure, effort yeah. that's required. So maybe it's done by the community. I know there are organizations and consortiums and, and conferences that do that sort of thing together, maybe the IEEE itself. But then that is such a heavy lift where it needs to be taken in, in, in the context of every network vendor that's out there and then every every time they update their code. And that's, right. that's just yeah. that's insane. It, it would be, it would be constant in... But but you know again if you if you are in a in a vendor neutral environment right uh, you know a lot of people will do you know uh, Juniper Cisco Arista uh, powered networks and then maybe they'll use a Palo Alto firewall okay well um, you know Palo Alto does does routing and they do they do have a have a standard um, you know OSPF BGP whatever um, so you can exchange routes um, and then it's just typically when, what you'll see is like you know like we mentioned before. Um, there will be interoperability guides, but they aren't put into the into the validated design guide. Okay, so interop is going to be a specific use case for for your your particular deployment. So you build it this way yeah. um, with with our stuff. You build it this way, and if we need to talk with someone else, well, here's some here's some things that you need to you need to be aware of to make your to get your your packets inspected by the firewall. Yeah, for service channels, you know. And- Exactly, service chain. In I, in working with enterprises, both small, medium, and then and and very very large, 
I, I haven't seen as much need for interoperability, Correct. I think, as the, the industry says we need. I, I really don't. So to have literally just a, a random mix of operating systems and vendors, hardware, you know, in your switching environment, in your WAN environment, I, I don't see that. I, I really, I, I, I usually see one particular vendor for like one network block. All my closets, IDFs, MDFs, are this brand. Yeah. And maybe this model even, but whatever. It's there, there's some uniformity there. All my data center, it might be a completely different brand, but I usually see uniformity within the data center. Yes. But then, you know, oh, for all our firewalls, we're gonna go with this. So I see these like network blocks that are broken up, and then you see kind of some uniformity of vendor and um, and platform within that block. But maybe each individual block is different. So you might not be Cisco or Juniper from campus to WAN to security yeah. to endpoint. Though you could be, and I had many customers that were uh, uh, back in the day, um, but I, I do see that as real life interoperability requirement. Can I, can, can my switching environment talk to my firewall? About the, about the only time I see um, interop needs, um, like in a, in a data center or in a, or in a campus or whatnot, it's usually when, when like the, the enterprise is moving from one vendor to another. So they don't do a rip and replace. Right, It'll be sure. like, okay, so now I've got um, you know, uh, Cisco and Juniper sitting in the same, at least side by side with each other, doing the same functions. Um, and then you'll cut, you'll, you'll, you'll cut all the, uh, the patch cables from one into another. So now you've got, now you're, now you kind of have, um, a group of, of devices from different vendors, but, but it's usually as, as things are, are shifting from one side to the other. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there, you know, uh, working with customers that were all HP switching and then switched to all Cisco switching. Yeah. Um, I have had a lot of folks that new CIO comes in and they want to do anything but Cisco, yeah. right? They're an ABC yeah. philosophy person and they're like, all right, we're going to get all of it out. And so you're in a transition phase. Um, and then again, we're talking about Ethernet and packets and TCP IP. So I, I didn't actually ever experience any interoperability issues of going from like my switching environment, which is vendor A, to my my distribution environment or my WAN environment that was vendor B, it never had any issues right, yeah. because it's just, we're not talking about completely different protocols. So yeah, it's, it's the, it's the underlying stuff that, that just kind of works. Right? And this is, this yeah, is why yeah. you don't what, want to do something about, like EIGRP or, or do those very vendor uh, specific doing those open standards um, really prevents you from vendor lock-in, which gives, which gives you the, the, the end user a whole lot of flexibility if um, you know, if they need to move from one side to another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I appreciate flexibility, but I actually recorded a podcast recently where my position was I don't I don't care that much about vendor lock-in. If it solves my problem, uh, you know, I'm choosing one vendor anyway, so I actually don't care that much. Because again, within one block, if I buy all my switching from one vendor, all my WAN devices from one vendor, fine. I get a discount. And, uh, and sure, I understand there's a heavy lift, but that's the that's the balancing act that we do when we're making these decisions and, and designing right. stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. Do you think that validated design guides then are truly, truly realistic since they've been deployed or developed rather in like lab scenarios and not necessarily real life scenarios? I mean, you did mention case studies, so maybe I'm misspeaking yeah, here. But what do you think? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple ways that, that case studies happen. Um, I'll just pick on I'll just pick on Juniper for now because you know everybody else may do it just a little bit a little bit differently. But like if we have a, a, a pretty good uh, account or a good customer. Um, they, you know, they're, they're kind of friendly. They've had a, they had, um, good experience. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just say that they've been using the product for a while. So, 
um, we will work with those with those customers to go. Hey, what was the problem that you were trying to solve? What did the data? What you know? What did uh, what did this particular technology? Why did you choose the type of technology? And how was it deployed? And then how did it how did it work? So those case studies usually come from a from a like it's in the wild and these things we're seeing. Um, this is how it's used. Sometimes you'll see the the case studies will actually come out of the lab and there's all kinds of tools to make um, you know to try and break uh, certain to to like artificially break networks right. Uh, packet generators and and all kinds of stuff. Uh, sometimes when you're looking at a case study, it's it's good to see the um, the label of the um, you know the company that that it, that's being uh, sort of interviewed and telling you how it how it worked for them. Uh, but those are those are very helpful. Yeah, again, when they're when they're doing these things in the lab, they they really are um, they really are trying to make sure that the, that all the main all the main points of a good network design, um, reliability, um, speed, reconvergence time, you know, what are the best ways to, to make this thing, um, work well? Um, like I said, so the, so the network engineers can sleep at night because no network ever breaks during the day. It always breaks Mm -hmm. at like two o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, it, it just never, it never turns out that way. So yeah, I think I think design guys are pretty are pretty t- trustworthy because they, they go through a lot of effort to to get these things written. Hey Brian, you know what? I think what I'd like to do is have you on again sometime in the not too distant future to talk specifically about good data center network design because I know that's your background and I, I wanted to talk to you about good network design in general. I wanted to talk about vend- uh, validated design guides today. But I want to maybe talk to you again, if you don't mind, about what a good data center network looks like and, and really focus on that. Yeah, I'd love to. So in any case, thank you for joining me today, though. This has been great. I love talking shop. So if folks want to reach out to you with a question about uh, network design or, or any other comment, how can they find you online? So you can, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you, can, you can email me as well, uh, bgleason at juniper.net. Um, you can pick me up there. We're packets at bytesofcloud.net. That's B-Y-T-E-S, not B-I-T-E-S. Got it. Okay, great. And uh, you can still find me on Twitter at network underscore Phil. Uh, if you're on Blue Sky, I'm on Blue Sky now as well. LinkedIn, just search my name and my blog, networkphil.com. Now, if you have an idea for a show, for an episode, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you'd like to be a guest on an episode of Telemetry Now, just reach out to us at telemetrynow at kentic.com. So for now, thanks for listening and bye-bye.